0: This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Handmaid's Tale edition of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth There, and I'm here with JJ Genflone. Hey, y'all. And I will note that uh, due to the content and quoting some of the a book The Handmaid's Tale uh today's episode will be in the explicit category due to some language so the book The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood 1985 it was a movie in 1990 with Natasha Richardson and Faye Dunaway and most notably a Hulu series that they have shown nine of the ten episodes which is on right now you've I- uh read the book right
1: I've read the book I've seen the original film with Natasha Richardson And I would say You know, I'm I'm not actually Always one of these people whose the book is better than the movies I kind of it, It's a different It's a different lens to see something So generally I like the books and the movies for the same For different reasons But because I'm like in love with the same source material Handmaid's Tale is interesting to me Because I love the book um, It was the first Margot Atwood book I ever read And as someone who considers herself like a feminist and an academic, I I have kind of a love affair with Atwood. But then I watched the film with uh, the late Natasha Richardson shortly actually after Richardson passed away, because everyone said that this was like the best performance. And I love the movie too. It has a very different vibe from the Handmaid's Tale Hulu series. And it, diverges from the book in different ways but I actually do highly recommend watching both um, and also reading the book but no so I've, I've seen all of it I, I feel a little bit weird to say that I'm a fan of The Handmaid's Tale <laughs> I guess it's a little bit like being a fan of a, a horror movie maybe but no but all, all three I want to say maybe evolutions of it are, are equally great so,
0: before and, and, yeah, before continuing on the book, I want to mention for our audience we are going to highly focus on the angle of uh slavery and trafficking as the filter for The Handmaid's Tale, but mm-hmm. we're also going to give some history and context. So, uh continue, JJ.
1: Yeah, and well I also think maybe what'll be helpful for people are listening to this is so while we'll we'll touch primarily on just like the source material of of the book, and then the Handmaid's Tale mini series that Hulu's been running, that has, you know, just exploded in popularity. That's kind of going to be what we're focusing on. So we're not really going to be talking about too much, if anything, from the 1990 film. But I will say it's definitely worth watching. But just be prepared that primarily what we're going to be talking about today is the Hulu series with with some smatterings of the book.
0: Let's see. Let's start with Margaret Atwood. So she's a Canadian author, wrote 17 novels, 15 books of poetry. She's the winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Prince of Asterios Award. She has an MA from Radcliffe and pursued two years of doctoral studies at Harvard University. So she's pretty accomplished. She's written a lot. And the book itself, The Handmaid's Tale, is listed in a lot of best of like for science fiction and otherwise. So so both the author and the book are pretty well regarded by a lot of people, even if not everyone likes them. And feminism. Now, part of what I read, JJ, about Margaret Atwood and feminism, I thought was interesting because uh, according to one person, she initially was resistant about using the term, but later accepted it, but kind of defined it as she accepted it. Do you know much about her feminism?
1: Well, yeah, I think, no, I think Mark and I would like a lot of feminist writers or kind of, what well, what are now considered feminist writers or feminist icons who were coming up at the time that she was, I think feminism was still perceived very much as sort of second wave feminism, which if you're unfamiliar with sort of the official waves of feminism or the fish, official sort of academic like delineation between the two You have first wave feminism which is yay you know 19th early early 20th century that's like let's get suffrage the right to vote okay then second wave feminism is starting 1960s runs into the 80s and that's more of Dealing with issues of like sexuality, family, the workplace, reproductive rights, this is like the burning of the bra sort of 1970s feminism. And so I think a lot of women when they hit the 80s thought saw themselves as not really needing this, not needing feminism, that the the de facto position was already one of equality. So then and then you have third wave f- feminism which pops up in the in the 80s and 90s and that's more of we're going to fight for racial gender economic and social justice and we're going to spread sort of what we gained through second wave feminism we're going to take it international. And now waves of feminism that have followed have said, you know, the way that it was taken international and the way that sort of social justice issues were defined had a problem. But I think what Atwood Atwood's responses is that she's coming up at a time where what feminism was defined as was a very particular specific type of, of living or a type of way of voting for equanimity. When, as she ages that with time, she realized that a lot of her positions were feminist positions. They just didn't fit that initial definition.
0: At the time she wrote it, which was 85 like the Christian right aligned with Republican Party, the Christian right as a political movement with specific items such as traditional marriage, anti-abortion, et cetera, became more political. And it looks like there was some reaction and backlash to feminism. Would you say that?
1: hmm Oh, I think so. Yeah.
0: And so we had Fallwell's Moral Majority was the notable organization at that time. And uh, so that just gives some context. And uh, she said that she's kept track of both uh, progress on women's issues and progress on human rights issues. She kept a clip file. And so there's some that she had shown to journalists in recent years, such as an associate press one that reported on a Catholic congregation in New Jersey that had been taken over by a fundamentalist sect in which wives were called handmaidens. And then she also noted an article where there was falling birth rates in Canada in the 1980s. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to mention that here is to note the difference between birth rates and fertility. And there could be a lot of reasons why birth rates would fall, why people aren't having children, um, choosing not to, abortion, etc. But for fertility, if people aren't able to get pregnant, then within a generation or two, Everyone could be gone. So that is the primary issue within the context of the book is for reasons they don't specifically state uh-huh. most women are not able to get pregnant and, and uh, birth a child. So I'll start off with this part, which I found was helpful, where she said that she was discussing, Margaret Atwood was discussing right wing Christian fundamentalism with a friend and she asked herself if a woman's place is in the home why aren't they in it and how do you get them back in Uh and if you were going to take over the United States what slogans would you use her ideas accumulated as she collected press cuttings about pollution and the falling birth rate and visited Afghanistan and Iran where women quote women are treated in the same light as they are in Gilead society some ways better some ways worse unquote so that this book to her was partially an exercise in answering that question. I know, especially coming from a Christian background, spending my early life mostly on the right, that this is a controversial book, that there are various criticisms of it, and so I just want to help people understand where she's coming from, whether you agree with it or not, and to see what we can draw out of it that's relevant to trafficking and slavery. So, JJ, what is happening in the Handmaid's Tale? What is their underlying setting?
1: Okay. So we are in the US, modern era America, following a a coup that has resulted in the country now being referred to as Gilead. And what we're seeing in Gilead in partial response to, as you mentioned, falling birth rates and environmental disaster that there was a sort of fundamentalist traditionalist, kind of conservative in the original sense of the word return done by these ruling parties. And so what what you see then is the subjugation of women. In the book, there is also it's it's also divided amongst racial lines. So it's white, Caucasian, men and women but primarily the men and then the wives of these these men running things with then women white women assigned to them and then the other races are sent to what is called the colonies they're called children of ham and they're sent out of the country because they're considered undesirable and the hulu and this and this holds true for the 1990s film but in the Hulu film, in order to make what they called a film, or, or a series rather, about racists as opposed to a racist series, was they decided that what would be of most importance would be the, the reproductive issues, not the racial issues, which is why now we have a multiracial cast in The Handmaid's Tale. So in The Handmaid's Tale, you have the mass subjugation of women as, as normally into two classes, although there are other subclasses mentioned. You either become a handmaid, which means that you are used as a vessel for reproduction. Or if you are not able to bear children, you are actually assigned another role based on a biblical story. You become a Martha and you become a female servant. If you're a man, there's some different sort of places you could end up being. You could end up being in forced labor. You could end up being a soldier. You could end up being killed.
0: Yeah, I actually found eight different categories that somebody provided for The Handmaid's Tale.
1: Yeah, that's actually a breakdown, but obviously the ones that are considered the most important or dealt with the most are the Marthas, the ones who kind of run households, Mm -hmm. and then the handmaids themselves, because obviously that's in in the book, and then further on, and now for the miniseries, which covers from more than just sort of one perspective of of what's happening, then you get sort of more of the handmaids.
0: Right. Uh, The other ones that are the most notable, the wives and daughters, since Mm -hmm. they have power, and the ones who aren't in official class which are the jezebels who are basically prostitutes
1: although it is important to know that the only thing that keeps the jezebels working as opposed to have been arrested is the fact that the men in power are using the actively using the jezebels and sort of running clubs where the jezebels are present
0: yeah um what do you know about unwomen since that's one where it's you don't really (laughs) see an unwoman but they allude mm-hmm. to them quite a few times in the book.
1: Well, what you need to remember too about the about the Handmaid's Tale in particular is that also this view of sexuality is that because it is men and women are meant to reproduce and women are meant to be sort of the like a like a basically a womb. You're supposed to be a conduit for children. Okay, so that's why you have things like the aunts. So the aunts are the infertile women that have the command over the handmaids and are, you know, responsible for like the births and things. But the unwives, which really is an uncomfortable phrase, is a woman without viable ovaries who doesn't serve any useful purpose for society. So these women are either killed or they're sent to the colonies or they become Jezebels.
0: And this is important because that threat is part of the coercive process, that if you don't oh, yeah. fill one of these roles in the middle, you become a nun woman, or you die.
1: Exactly. Or you become you become a Jezebel, which could result in you being labeled nun woman or being killed.
0: So there's a lot of ways where the society after the coup becomes oppressive. And uh, while it is nominally a fundamentalist Christian society. I would call it a co-opted society. Like when I read, as somebody coming from a religious background, I see only the rough framework of religion without a whole, without any heart, which if we had a theocracy would probably be what I would expect, something that's not really Christianity, but has the form of it. Just to lay that, but it ends up being an oppressive society and they control information and people... They have spies called eyes who could be anybody, which then makes you unsure what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot of not just policing, but self-policing. And that's shown really well in the Hulu series.
1: Well, and what they what they do kind of hint at, but you don't see explicitly too, is that there are two other sort of categories of women. There's the econo wife. So that's men... It isn't that everyone in Gilead, every woman was taken. It's men without power of money but had legal wives before Gilead came to full power were permitted to keep their wives. So unless, of course, they were arrested for crimes against the state, in which case their wives came sort of, uh, shall we say, open and on the market. So the wives that are in these roles that must be subjugated to the person they're married to are so-called econo wives because they have to provide – all of the functions of the Martha's, the handmaids, the Jezebels, all of that all at once. Then there is also the fact, too, that I that I want to make really clear before we move forward that this is a society where homosexuality is also a sin. You you must be default heterosexual because that provides reproduction. So if you are a gender traitor, if you're homosexual, you're a lesbian lesbian, you're gender nonconforming, uh you're you're killed. They they actually refer to this this is the same thing that happens to handmaids if they've passed through three houses without bearing a child, you're you're shredded, which is a way that in which you're killed.
0: To set up the structure of the book, which, and then get into a quote. So, most of the book is a first person narrative of somebody named Alfred. And then the last part of the book is a supposed transcript 200 years in the future, where academics are looking at this personal narrative that this handmade Alfred had put together and analyzing it. So I'll read one of those just because it might be helpful. Quote, It was clear from internal evidence that she was among the first wave of women recruited for reproductive purposes and allotted to those who both required such services and could lay claim to them through their position in the elite. The regime created an instant pull of such women by the simple tactic of declaring all second marriages and non-marital liaisons adulterous, arresting the, er, the female partners, and on the grounds that they were morally unfit, confiscating the children they already had, were adopted by childless couples of the upper echelons who were eager for progeny by any means. Men highly placed in the regime were thus able to pick and choose among women who had demonstrated their reproductive fitness by having produced one or more healthy children, a desirable characteristic in the age of plummeting Caucasian birth rates, a phenomenon observa- observable not only in Gilead, but in most northern Caucasian societies of the time, End quote. One of the Bible verses quoted, Genesis 30, verse 3, King James Version. And she said, Behold, my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees, that I may also have children by her. For those of you not very familiar with the Christian Bible, most notably in early Genesis, mid-Genesis, before they go to Egypt, in this case Jacob, where he ended up with two wives, it's complicated. He has two wives, but then they're having trouble having children. So then they suggest that Jacob go into their maids. And so then he goes into two maids who also have children. And that later changes to not be a norm. But there's, in the context of this story, it's where they're like, well, is there any precedent? And it's something that maybe we don't think of every day in the United States, but surrogacy happens and uh, like, there's women in India who make money by being surrogates. And uh, do you um, have anything to add about surrogacy?
1: Yeah, we have. We should probably actually do a podcast about that coming up, just adding one more to the tally. But there's there's been surrogacy via sort of trafficking or force since the times before the Bible. It, it, that's not new. But there's also been been surrogacy. In, in non-trafficking forms, where people have agreed, and you know, to, to do a thing either either for a partner or a family friend or for, for money, you can you can legally be paid in the U.S. and other countries to serve as a surrogate. Now, the only thing that I would make sure that that's very clear that people understand is the type of surrogacy that we're talking about is not consensual surrogacy. And so there are cases of forced surrogacy or sort of forced reproduction happening uh, around the world, both in historical times and actually still now into modernity.
0: So i want to read a few brief quotes from Offred from the book before talking more about Offred. Quote, I am 33 years old. I have brown hair. I stand 5'7 without shoes. I have trouble remembering what I used to look like. I have viable ovaries. I have one more chance. Another quote where she's thinking back. Quote, "'I think about laundromats, what I wore to them, shorts, jeans, jogging pants, what I put into them, my own clothes, my own soap, my own money, money I'd earn myself. I think about having such control. Now that we walk along the same street, in red pairs, and no man shouts obscenities at us, speaks to us, touches us, no one whistles. There is more than one kind of freedom,' said Aunt Lydia." Freedom to and freedom from. In the days of anarchy, it was freedom to. Now you are be being given freedom from. Don't underrate it. That's part of what I found interesting about the book was the story she told herself and how she tried to make sense of her situation and how she even mused about which what ways is it better now. And I have to give Atwood some credit. It wasn't a preachy novel in that there was actually debates like was everything good back then? Is everything better and worse? And and just that there was even just that part of the book. It's kind of well, uncomfortable. Yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable was, though.
1: <laughs> it's super uncomfortable. Um, but it's also one of those things where I think as as we sort of merge into talking about the ways in which The Handmaid's Tale reflects historical American style slavery and then sort of modern day human trafficking, it's important to remember that what was considered most valuable about people in pre-Civil War slavery was their bodies, what their bodies could do. It's not the person, it's, it's the package the person comes in, their physical, their physical body. And so her saying that what she does have is working ovaries and that's what her chance comes from is not super dissimilar from the lives of millions of people who were enslaved.
0: One of the commentaries I looked at noted that Atwood chose Offred, a white, college-educated American as the archetype of female exploitation, but critics and commenters have also noted what what J.J. just mentioned was that there is a corollary to the American South within Handmaid's Tale, which I didn't think about as I watched the series and, and as I read the book, but once I did, it became pretty clear, the similarities. And what are some of those similarities, J.J.?
1: Well, as I mentioned, it's the one, I mean, like, just like on the firm basics is that the the women here who are subjugated have no bodily autonomy. Their bodies exist for biological functions, whether it's to provide sex, to provide sex and reproduction, to provide labor. They have no choices. Failure, you know, no way to express our agency, failure to participate or do what their master's the, the men and I think this is important too. We see women, so the the elites. But failure to respond to what the elites want them to do uh, results in very physical, painful punishments, ranging from beatings to genital mutilation to to losing limbs and, and eyes. We see an eye being being plucked out of a particular handmaid as as well as just the ultimate fear, which is I'll be sent to the colonies. I'll be sent away, not dissimilar from fears that slaves held in the American South, that they would be sent further down South. That was always a fear that if you misbehave, uh, that you will be sent to a sort of more severe slave state or to a harsher, crueler master down the line. And that's kind of what the colonies represent. And then also what you have happening is this fear of death, that because you are property, to kill you is not murder. To kill you is is instead a form of justice for the elites to take action on top of you. So...
0: Yeah, that part's one thing I've been pondering is, are they property or are they trafficked? I mean usually the main difference is whether they're legally owned. Have you seen anything in in uh, the I, book or the movie that make that clear?
1: Well, what what to me makes it clear that they're that they're legally owned although it might may not be specific is in the book the way in which they are assigned to the men they serve or the households they serve when they become say like of Fred or of Stephen or whoever. That is to me, because it's systematized and they're physically being sent there by a particular registry and it's being tracked and taken care of and there's a military component in terms of how you're shipped there and moved. To me, that's a very clear sign of of being property when you don't even have control of your own name. What the Hulu series does that I think is great is it makes it even more explicit by positioning Gilead in a world where... And I believe it's in episode six, correct me if I'm wrong here, where you see other countries come into play. And so Mexico is physically present coming, well, our diplomats from Mexico are physically present coming up. And you discovered that Gilead is making arrangements to send women to Mexico to basically perform the exact same handmaid's process that is happening in Gilead. So once you see sort of the shipping or the transportation of these women specifically to be reproductive entities, and you have Offred speaking actually to the representative and saying, like, no, I'm I'm kept – you know, she sort of self-identifies as a slave. I was captured. I'm forced into this. This is terrible. You have to do something. You have to end this. And the representative says, like, no, like, we kind of – like, we, we got to do this. This is important to keep the world going. That – to me is a clear case of using legal ownership.:
0: The parts that are threats, like saying, "We'll send you away, that's a form of coercion." And there's also just a lot of daily psychological coercion. But again, to go back to slavery and slave narratives and portrayals of slavery, and even some Jim Crow can be similar. Without the legal ownership and slavery part, but with the oppression that, like a slave, it's you know the equivalent of yes, boss, no boss uh-huh. where and it's so clear in the TV series and so well done, especially when you show her thinking is to have a glimpse and just a notion of what is it like to deal with psychological coercion and demeanment, dehumanization on a daily basis. What are the choices you have to make? And it's interesting when you have Elizabeth Moss's offered where she thinks one thing, and then she says the thing that's expected because that's what she has to say. Like, it's often, yes, but slavery, American slavery was like that.
1: Well, I think that that's exactly what it is. And so when you see people who are kind of apologists for American slavery... Or try to sort of – and I understand a compulsion. I want to make that clear. Like I, like I get it. it. It assuages guilt that makes us feel like the world isn't quite so evil or that human beings, regular human beings, can't be cruel and terrible to each other if we reduce everything to only – well, there were a few monsters and everybody else kind of got caught up in it. And one of the ways people do that to sort of make themselves feel better is they'll mention – when there were sort of these quote-unquote positive slave narratives that came out of the American South, which is to say people who were pro-slavery who provided or did kind of early ethnography of slaves and, and slaves reported, oh, like, no, like, this is great. I love it. I love my masters, blah, blah, blah. Well, the reason for that was is to not, participate in that, to not not agree to this lie that, yes, I love this, this great, thank you so much, is is to risk suffering and death.
0: As I'm thinking about it now, in the commander's household, based on what some people say, slaves are treated well, like in many respects, if that's the rubric, she's treated well. She's fed, she's clothed, she has a, a place to sleep. She gets to go out. She's not beaten.
1: In the 90s film, there are moments where there are sort of these acknowledgments of, well, we gave her some sort of extra clothes, or we let her walk and pick some flowers in the garden. So she's not really a slave. But it's like, no, if, if she had left, she would have been murdered, and her night ends with her being forcibly raped. That's slavery. That's not that you gave her this gift of clothes for altruistic means it's it's you trying to and by you i mean in this particular case it's it's fred of of the the man who technically quote-unquote owns offred and this is very clear in the 1990s film um of him having some sort of ownership
0: well and at the end of offred's narrative in the book sorry spoiler don't know where the tv series is gonna go (laughs) the uh, show notes will start with spoiler but in the book, it ends a bit ambiguously. And uh, as she's being taken away in a black van, uh, Serena Joy says, Bitch, after all he did for you, just th- the anger that Alfred would do something to betray the family after all they did for, for her. And you've seen this in slave narratives, too, where they'll, they'll just be incredulous about, like, wh- why would you betray me? Why would you run away? I, I do all this for you because the slave masters justified in their head by saying, well, look what I do for you. I'm your patron, et cetera, and all the other lies. And so that kind of struck me as well. Now, one noticeable difference here, and, and slaves also did this, is American slaves, while it could be pretty miserable, also exerted agency. And uh, a huge difference between the book and the Hulu series is, Alfred was unnamed in the book. And in the TV series, she has the name of June. And June is also more assertive about her situation than the book. But that would also make lousy TV. So I'm kind of glad Hulu is doing that way. So we have somebody who isn't just a witness, but is a bit of a heroine. But it's it's also just interesting and fascinating to see, like, here's what repression looks like, and here's what agency looks like. Any comments on agency?
1: Well, it's agency is the ability... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just that agency is the ability of an individual to act with complete and utter free choice of the will. So if I'm acting with full agency, I'm acting with full consent and full knowledge so when you're when you're in slavery or when you're a human trafficking victim your agency has been taken away from you because what you would want to do and what you're aware you can do are heavily heavily constricted by the will of someone else and so very few people in the handmaid's tale have agency the ones that do are the ones that you see sort of on this underground female railroad which is another sort of harken back to american-style slavery of people trying to get other people out of bondage via, via breaking the law and running sort of this illegal sort of refugee line into the north, actually, into Canada, which is not Gilead, which is safe.
0: So we're going to go deeper into the sex slavery angle, but first let's talk about labor trafficking. Talked about it a little already, but even other characters... Are in a repressive state. Although I'm a little less clear on that um, by watching the show what their situation is. Do you have any more clarity?
1: I, I would just suggest that if you really want like a, a super duper clear, detailed breakdown of sort of the, the lives or the different categories of, of men and women within the Hayman's Tale, I really would recommend reading the book. I don't think in terms of our conversation today, it will be super illuminating or at least more so than like other things that we could focus on just because of the time that we have. But I mean, certainly a lot has been written, especially sort of on the role of the Martha of that once you're a woman who can no longer reproduce, your only benefit is your labor. And once the need for your labor goes away or if you're in any way sort of otherwise remarkable or objectionable, you have the risk of being killed or sent to the colonies.
0: Although even the character of Nick in his role doesn't appear to have much
1: choice. Oh, well, like, the thing is, the idea is that everyone is constrained, even the elites, but the elites are the ones who are setting the constraints.
0: Yeah, well, and to go back to American slavery, you would sometimes have slaves who had different roles and had more responsibility, whether that would be a foreman, or whether that would be as the person who punishes the other slaves. And just because you are, quote, managing your own people or punishing your own people does not mean that you're free, doesn't mean that you are doing it by choice. You might just be taking the the little bit of power that you can have and making do with it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that little bit of power made some people cruel. And uh, in the Hulu series, you have some was it the Marthas? The Marthas. Aunts. Yeah, the, the Marthas, who also have some kind of cool cruelty.
1: Uh, well, unless you're talking... So the Marthas are the ones that are within the homes. The Aunts ah. are the ones who are running the center. Right. But, I mean, so but the in, 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 in the book, it's you see the Marthas kind of expressing... You know, it's this idea of that when you're being subjugated or when you're being treated as an object, everyone likes to think that they would somehow rise above and they just be this martyr figure, but a lot of people end up sort of subjugating other people. You know, there's hierarchies of power here. In in the film and in the the miniseries, it's very much the aunts that you see as sort of these true believers who are exceptionally cruel in ways.
0: Yeah, that's right. There's two Marthas in the house Mm
1: -hmm. in the
0: book and one of them's nice and one of them's not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's a nice way of saying it.
0: Yeah, we're nice. All right. uh, anything else on the labor, and there's moments, uh, Oh, this will be a bad pun, people, I'm sorry, but uh, like we had to do some coding, and uh, I came across forced pregnancy, and so mm-hmm. I had to ask somebody whether that was forced labor.
1: Oh, sad. Yeah. I don't know if we can be friends after that one. No,
0: but it's also in, in that category of something that's like we, we have our normative categories of what and then that which just seems so reprehensible
1: yeah and for people who don't understand actually what giving birth does to a person that you know it is a physically demanding taxing and dangerous thing I think there are still some people who think that it's because it's a a quote-unquote natural event that you know women can just pop out babies and it's no no big thing when in fact it's a it's a very big deal (laughs)
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm going to read two quotes from Alfred as we move into talking more about sex. And I'll ask for a commentary after both of them. Okay, this is after she went to the commander's... Well, actually, as she's in the commander's room and she's thinking about... like, She's often in a position of, I'm following the rules because I don't want to get... Eat or worse and she says to herself, "My presence here is illegal. It's forbidden for us to be alone with the commanders. We are for breeding purposes. we aren't concubines, geisha girls, courtesans. On the contrary, everything possible has been done to remove us from that category. There's supposed to be nothing entertaining about us. no room is to be permitted for the flowering of secret lusts. No special favors are to be wheedled by them or us. There are to be no tollholds for love. We are two-legged wombs, that's all. Sacred vessels, ambulatory chalices. So why does he want to see me at night alone? Thoughts?
1: Well, no, I mean, I think that that clarifies things really, really firmly, is that, but what you have to imagine here, too, and what I want to make really clear, is that while the commander is taking a risk to see her and talk to Offred and, like, operate, you know, live with her, it's a minimal risk. You know, it wasn't Mm -hmm. socially acceptable, really out in the open, for masters to have sexual relations and children with their slaves, but they had them all the time. Cough. See our Thomas Jefferson podcast. Cough. And who that arrangement was really harmful and dangerous for was the slave. It's the person lowest on the power totem pole. So while Offred may only be being treated as a womb, and she's only being treated as what it is that her body can physically provide, the people around her can assign other meanings to her body that she can't control, i.e. the commander deciding that she's an object of lust or, or even a romantic interest. And she has no rights to operate Or or treat him like she would otherwise because she's got to do this balancing act of she can't go against him but what they're doing is incredibly dangerous for her the worst he's going to get is a slap on the wrist the worst she's going to get is death it's a whole different thing of risk
0: yeah i also thought about how the ceremony which we're going to talk about how it's meant to be disconnected and only like just the most basic part of sex, impregnation, and how it's not, not only not requiring emotion, but it's pushing it aside. But then you have being in the commander's office where it's more the emotional side. And both, I'd say repressive, but both coercive. You're You're forcing somebody to adapt and conform to your image of what you want them to be
1: and so what, what I want to make really clear, too, is that you have no control over that image of yourself. You have no options to consent to anything because the system in which you're working is so heavily stacked against you.
0: Now, the, the ceremony, which they give more context to in the TV show, and I'll go ahead and use that, In the TV show, they give the justification as we're the elite men. We should have access to the reproductive women as surrogates, but our wives might object, so let's have them be there and we'll come up with something that is a better term, like the ceremony. And uh, one of the things, you know, people like this is – something uncomfortable and people have this is a book that has been banned from some schools because of its depictions of sex and language which i get and and uh, some people have mocked as ridiculous and blah 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 i'm just trying to acknowledge the different viewpoints here and uh, in the book itself and in the commentary at the end it says that the Ceremony was suggested by an English village custom of the 17th century. Atwood tried to base everything in the book on something so that Mm -hmm. there was at least one precedent. So in this case, that's what it was. Quote I want to read, but first of all, what does the ceremony look like?
1: Uh, The ceremony is disturbing. Uh, And this is one of the reasons I think why we maybe listed this as explicit. So what the ceremony involves is, in addition to prayer and sort of oh, yeah. certain like ritualistic statements being given, the the wife of the elite member lays back on the bed. She is dressed in blue because that's that's the color of the wives. She then holds in between her legs, as if as a surrogate womb, the handmaid who's dressed in red. Then. The the handmaid is, is raped by her, the, the master, by, by the man that she's been assigned to. The whole time she is being held by the wife, she is expected to be quiet. She is expected to take it passively. She is not to fight back in any way, shape, or form. Once it is over, there is sort of another prayer. There's specific statements that need to be made, and then the handmaid is sent away. And so it's a very, I, I've seen it depicted now in the miniseries. I've seen it depicted in the original film. Both present sort of a different view about whether or not the wives are also being victimized by this. If, you know, if are the wives being forced into this or are they complicit? The Hulu show makes it much more that the wives are complicit. The, 90s film i feel makes it seem more like they're both equally being victimized but the wife is lashing out at whoever she can you can kind of draw your own conclusions but and then the book is also very sort of explicit with how it how it lays back
0: well yeah well and as the book in the again the commentary at the end mentioned it's like well there's three examples they looked at to deal with reproduction artificial mm-hmm. insemination fertility clinics and surrogate mothers and you know they chose surrogates but you go any of those routes it's going to make people uncomfortable mm-hmm. or i should say it's at least just not standard but
1: no not at all
0: i, I uh, shudder to talk about something like this since you know not only am i not a female but i i can't you know, for, for people that uh, have fertility problems or otherwise, I mean, this is heart-wrenching. It is heart-wrenching and emotionally challenging. And so I, I don't want to make light of anybody who is trying to have children and trying to choose an option to make that happen.
1: And I think what's important to remember here, too, is that the whole the whole time this is happening, it's it's positioned as it's this isn't a a thing that's happening for sexual pleasure. And it's not a thing that's happening even for sort of showing power or showing power, you know, uh, forcing a power dynamic onto somebody else. What it is about is you need to produce a child within a specific amount of time as a result of this rape, and if you don't, you're going to die. So it's it's a very, very violent act. And the way that it's presented as happening sort of in the middle of the day, in the under the position of, like, prayer, or or under the position of sort of, like, ritualistic stuff, which makes it seem sort of commonplace. It happens in a bedroom in the middle of the day, like, on a week, Day, it just it makes it seem like this is this is a horror that happens normally.
0: (laughs) Well, and it also causes unintended consequences by mandating it has to be a certain way, and then women who are under constraints to have children then find other means to make that happen.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you have, if you participate in, in sex or any sort of relationship that's outside of the role you've been assigned, then you are a Jezebel or you risk death. Or both. You can be both camps at once.
0: But if you don't get caught, then you can go on another day by having sex with the doctor who, in the book, freely offers. Well, actually, yeah. the book in the TV series
1: well, and then that's the side thing, too, is that they're so focused on the reproductive capabilities of women, but they don't focus on the reproductive capabilities of the men. So it could very well be that while you are being abused sexually, emotionally, mentally, physically, all of these things, there's no possibility of you getting any sort of freedom via reproduction because there's no way for that to happen, and it's not a failure of your body it's a failure of the masters.
0: Right, and both the book and Hulu series make that clear.
1: Yeah, very much so, which is why you have things like... Uh, what I actually liked a little bit better than... I said I wasn't going to talk about the 90s movie, and now I am. But what I like a little bit more about the 90s film is they actually talk about sort of this idea because technology is obviously present of, well, why can't we just do... Why why do we have to have this, this rape? Why can't we just do, like, forced um insemination via chemistry, biology, things like that. And the answer is well that's not natural and the doctors can be bribed. But if you be willing to do it, we we can make that happen too.
0: There's one quote sorry for the profanity from the ceremony. Mm-hmm. My red skirt is hitched up to my waist though no higher. Below it the commander is fucking. What he is fucking is lower part of my body. I do not say making love because this is not what he's doing. Copulating, too, would be inaccurate because it would imply two people and only one is involved. Nor does rape cover it. Nothing is going on here that I haven't signed up for. There wasn't a lot of choice, but there was some, and this is what I chose. End quote.
1: Yeah, but when the choice is that or death.
0: A few reasons I read that. One is, here's what Offred is telling herself to make sense of the situation. But also, it's showing some amount of nuance in how Outrid wrote the book. But in the, the commentary at the end of the book, when the people are looking back on Offrid's story, they call it a collective rape ceremony, thereby mm-hmm. showing that, yes, this is rape. So, are we agreeing then, uh, JJ, that this is both slavery and rape?
1: I agree. Yeah.
0: So, I believe you wanted to talk to someone on reproduction?
1: Mm hmm. Very much so.
0: Can you help people understand a little bit about reproductive rights? Like when we start talking about that, it, it gets controversial because then you know, abortion and everything else. But like when I read Half the Sky, mm-hmm. I felt like I as a male ta- learning about people in some countries who may not have as much choice in the matter. Like it just made it a little more clear to me at least why this is important to some people. And again, speaking as a male... So anyway, JJ?
1: Well, what, what I'm going to stick to is just the idea. So I'm just going to do pure definition. Okay. I'm not going to do what people consider to be right or wrong because it's, it's very different across cultures and countries and place and, and individuals, actually. But reproductive rights, which I would like to point out, are rights for both men and women. Okay? It's not just women. Are the rights of individuals to decide whether or not to reproduce and to have reproductive health. So that's things like sex education, the right to plan a family, the right to gain access to reproductive health services. And what reproductive health services are, are access to, if you're pregnant, prenatal care, access to if you're having some sort of sexual issues, access to medical care for that, okay? Reproductive oppression is the control and exploitation of indul- individuals through their bodies, specifically reproduction. Now, what normally that pans out at is sort of this, do people have the right to abortion or not? Is is blocking someone from the right to abortion or, or the right to contraception in some cases, is that taking away someone's reproductive freedom because they don't have full choice? But what also plays a part in there, too, is freedom from forced or coerced sterilization. So we have, for example, just to use the U.S., is that we have had a history of people of color having their reproductive rights tromper or taken away from them by the U.S. government. In particular, what I'm thinking of is women, Black women in the South who were forcibly sterilized without their permission, um, oftentimes unknowing. Then, and I mean, this also happened, of course, with with not, I just don't want to make it seem like it happened to black Americans as well. It also happened to Native American women and happened to, to rural poverty, women in rural poverty as well. But it especially happened for, for black women of color. But then I also... You know, on the male side of things, the the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, which happens in the sort of 1930s, 1940s, where men, black men, are... 300 i'm sorry not 300 uh 600 of them are given syphilis or not told that they have syphilis and then studied to see what it is that like what happens when you don't treat syphilis and the answer is what happens when you don't treat syphilis is people die so these men thought that they had quote-unquote bad blood and that they were they were being saved that they were getting medical treatment when, in fact, what was happening is people were just kind of cataloging how they died. Meanwhile, these men, syphilis spreads through sexual contact. Meanwhile, these men continue to have relations with wives and partners. They continue to father children, so they spread this disease. So this is an attack on sort of reproductive health. Syphilis can also cause you to become infertile. So when we're talking about reproductive health and the right to choose, like, are you going to get pregnant or not, that's only a small portion of it, but that's obviously the portion that, because of the role of the handmaids, that's the most focused on here. What's the additional thing here is that it's not just that these women are being forced to become pregnant and and bear children and give birth to children, it's that once these children are born, they have no control over their own children. So even though these children are theirs, they made them, they are biologically part of them, these children are then immediately reassigned to other, well, to to the the husband and wife masters or the elites that they were assigned to. So it's that you have no right to your children once you have them. So now we have the trafficking of children because we see that these children are being moved around and also we're seeing that the taking of children from women and men who are considered to be unworthy and assigning them to these elite parents but that these children are being moved around.
0: Yeah, there's a really poignant uh, presentation of that in episode nine of the Hulu series. And also that sort of thing, we could also do in an episode on dodgy adoptions where Mm -hmm. I think sometimes kids are stolen and uh, end up with parents and the parents don't know the circumstances by which they have the child. But then also to go back to the fact that women are so identified in The Handmaid's Tale with being defined by their reproduction.
1: Mm-hmm. No, and the the 90s film does a good sort of mention of that where you see the elite, the wives and daughters making jokes about how the handmaids are all just, just sluts who just want to have lots of sex and so they just need to get on with it. Having children isn't that hard.
0: So in reading various articles about The Handmaid's Tale, I've written one. He called it Loopy and uh, All sorts of Criticism. And the mm-hmm. books, it's an imperfect book. I mean, even, even the feminists criticize it and uh, people who care about slavery criticize it because it's mostly a white society in the book, although I would say in that case it's more of a white nationalist or white separatist setup. But Atwood partially drew on examples like when Ayatollah Khomeini took over Iran in 79, where they changed things where women had to wear a veil. They would leave the university, give up paid work, and return to home. Um, in uh, Nicolae Ceausescu's Romania, there was a time where they monitored women monthly for pregnancy, outlawed birth control and abortion, and linked women's wages to childbearing. And I'm also going to link to an article that... Hannah Edinger wrote on the establishment which is titled I Grew Up in a Fundamentalist Cult Like the One in the Handmaid's Tale mm-hmm. where among other things in uh, the movement that she was part of that's now called Quiverful as in the verse that uh, God would bless the man whose quiver is full of arrows
1: probably best known publicly by by the Duggars
0: and she mentions a lot of things but uh, most relevantly that uh women like her mom didn't have their own bank accounts didn't have their own email addresses and couldn't leave the home without permission from their husbands and they were called help meets and so part of what I want to draw here coming back coming from a religious backgrounds and seeing a lot of different versions of Christianity the Handmaid's Tale does not represent most Christians I've ever known uh-huh. but I have seen sex S-E-C-T-S or or sub-ideologies that would fit it more that have authoritarian or uh, aren't as big on other viewpoints Uh and so uh, some of those that you could look up if you want to uh, Dominionism more specifically Christian Reconstructionism which is a form of Dominionism that uh, Rush Duny came up with which was about occupying secular institutions and reconstructing them after biblical principles and that it may require civil disobedience to the point of violence to make that happen. And all of that to say is there are subsectors who could be like that, even within Christianity. I don't consider that Christianity. Just because a sector of a religion takes over does not mean that that's normative. But Mm -hmm. if they took over...
1: It can become normative.
0: (laughs) And I, I can't speculate what... Would happen if Most women were not able to have children Like how that would change society Because Mm -hmm. it would change society
1: Oh yeah And there have been plenty of dystopian tales that deal Actually with this, I'm thinking of children and men in particular What happens when Right Yeah, what happens when there's no more children What happens when the human race starts to die out
0: Yeah, and something I meant to say at the beginning, this is a dystopian novel. Dystopian novels are generally not plausible. I don't consider 1984 <laughs> plausible in most respects. I don't consider Brave New World plausible. There are aspects of it that are plausible. There, There's things you can draw from these books, but this is a speculative novel. That's what she considers it, speculative fiction. And it says, here's here's a world kind of like our own with some differences, and here's some what-ifs, and here's what it might look like based on my imagination. And uh, I can think of something from Token. Yes, I'm bringing Token into it. Because he didn't like it when people took the Lord of the Rings and tried to make it an allegory, as in, oh, elves are angels or things like that. He's like, no. Not not an allegory, but it's applicable. You can apply these concepts and you can apply themes to his story. And that's what I would say with The Handmaid's Tale is there's a lot that's applicable that you can draw from it. And uh, one person, I forget which article it was, she said, I don't think the book is timely. I think it's timeless in terms of just women's issues. Any final thoughts, JJ?
1: Just that what I want people to remember is that the type of slavery being shown in The Handmaid's Tale isn't new. It is taking place in a dystopian future, but it was the reality for people in the United States not super long ago.
0: We've come a long way. We haven't come a long way.
1: We have and we haven't. Two steps forward, two steps back. But I'm, I'm going to be very intrigued. I've heard tale that they're going to that The Handmaid's Tale might get re-upped. So even though it, it would end this this year, the mini series on sort of the, the ending of the book, maybe, we don't know yet, but that we could continue sort of working and living and understanding this world via, via future seasons, and I, for one, would love it.
0: All right. Episode 10 will be this week, The Handmaid's Tale TV series.
1: You guys should all watch it. It's worth it.
0: And next week, we will talk about... Based on our current plan, Comfort Women.
1: Which fits very well in with this particular, with The Handmaid's Tale. So if you have any questions about Comfort Women or anything in particular you want us to cover, or if you disagree with us about anything we said today in The Handmaid's Tale, please, as always, send us tweets, send us messages, tell your friends.
0: All right, bye everyone. Bye! This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.